Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me.
Please pray with me. Father, we are overwhelmed by your love for us, by your sacrifice, that we can indeed approach the throne of grace with confidence and find your mercy and your help there. We praise you that through Jesus we have a great high priest who is not unable to empathize with our weaknesses but was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. We pray that you would speak into our hearts of these deep and profound truths that we might indeed approach your throne of grace with confidence. It is in your most holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God. come to the Father in prayer and uh, sharing with him all the burdens and the concerns of our hearts. As we pray together this morning, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We come this morning acknowledging our need for Jesus. We pray that you will hear our prayers of confession, our prayers of need. And we ask that you will fill us with your spirit, make us new. Father, we pray for the burdens that are on our hearts today. Pray for people who are grieving and ask for your comforting presence in each heart. We pray for all who are struggling with physical needs. And we pray for Beulah Avery, Jill Tyson, Priscilla Waltz, Dick Gould, Vesta Mullen, Bruce Brenneman, Bill Roski, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Isla Shea, Edna Howard, Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and for others who are on our minds and hearts this morning, we ask for your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we pray for this world in which we live, and we think especially today of countries and places where war and conflict and unrest are the norm. We pray that you will bring peace to these places of conflict. We pray for your ongoing uh, mercy and healing for all who have been affected by the Ebola virus and continue to be. People who are living with such pain and despair, loss of life, destruction of so much that's central to life. We pray that you will restore what is broken and heal this disease and all the diseases that devastate so many people. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution for your name. Reminded today of, of the needs of the church in Myanmar, China. We read of such conflict and opposition that a, an entire church has to flee. We pray that you will bless these Christians, supply them with all that they need. And we pray, Father, that you would work miraculously in the provisions you bring them, so much so that those who are not followers of you might see your loving care, not just upon your church, but others as well, that they might see this and open their hearts to you. Father, for all the other needs and burdens that we bring today, hear our prayers. Father, continue to draw us together as we continue to worship you. Let the, the spirit of the cross be upon us in power and grace for this hour of worship and for every hour of our lives. And we pray all of this through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, including ours. the one in whose name we gather and offer this prayer. Amen.
Our scripture this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 14. I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of the gospel. Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed as if the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. People have different views about uh, whether the Bible is true or not. And there are people, there's different ways that people use to prove that the Bible is true. For some people, they see the Bible just like they see any other religious literature. Every religious group has their book. Muslims have the Quran, the Hindus have the Bhagavad Gita, Christians have the Bible. And, and all these books are basically the same. They all, you know, teach what the people believe who follow that particular religion. And they're just human books. And of course, we believe that the Bible is more than that. We believe that the Bible is true. We believe that it is the word of God to us. And one of the ways that, that I think One of the things about the Bible that sets it apart from these other religious books, and one of the the reasons why I believe the Bible is true, is the way the Scripture presents its heroes. When you read through the Scriptures, the, the great people of God, the people that the Bible says, these are the heroes of our faith. They are not presented As perfect people. In fact, some of the things that they do make you scratch your head and say, these are God's people. Moses, great man of God. And yet, we are told some of his great failures. David, great man of God. But the Bible is not shy in telling us about his failures. The scriptures are honest about its heroes. And for me, that adds such credibility. 
Because if I was to write this, if I was to make it up on my own, I wouldn't do that. If I'm trying to convince people this is the way, the truth, this is what you're looking for, then I'm going to present people in the very best possible light. But when you read the scriptures, we find that rather than trying to sugarcoat the truth, the scriptures are concerned about honesty. And that's even true about Jesus. When you read through the scriptures, you see Jesus and and we see him being human. And one of the places we see that most clearly is in this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows that his hour is just about to come. He is just on the cusp of being arrested and eventually crucified. And he comes to the garden. As we said before, this is where the battle takes place. This is where everything gets settled. And he comes to the garden and he prays. And what we find in his prayer, a number of dynamics in this prayer, but one of the things that's at the heart of this prayer is Jesus being honest with the Father. It's a little bit startling to see Jesus being honest, saying, Father, you can do anything. So how about me not doing this? It's, it's one of those prayers that you kind of say, man, I thought Jesus was, had a deeper center of spirituality than that. I thought he had his spiritual life together and here he is saying, Lord, I'd, Father, I'd really rather not do this. What? It's kind of like those, some of those psalms that you read that make you really nervous when you read them, especially in church. The kind of things that you, when you invite people, non-Christian friends to come to church, you hope and pray you don't read one of those psalms that Sunday in church. They're a little bit startling and, quite frankly, a little bit embarrassing. And when you see Jesus here in the garden, in essence, begging the Father to say, I'd really rather not do this. It makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And yet it reminds us that at the heart of prayer, which is then at the heart of our faith, there is honesty. Honesty with God. And Jesus is not afraid to be honest with the Father. He knows what's ahead for him. He knows there's going to be physical pain that's going to come that's going to uh, come to him in the next few hours. He knows how the Romans deal with criminals. He gets that. It's going to be brutal. He knows that he's going to face some emotional pain, deep emotional pain, because the people that he has invested in the most, the people he is closest to in this world, are going to run from him, deny him, even betray him. They don't just stick in the knife, they stick it in and twist it. But I'm convinced that the, that the greatest pain that he is about to face is not physical or emotional, it's spiritual. When he hangs on the cross, and the scripture says he takes upon himself the sins of the world, I am convinced that that means he is taking upon himself what he's never experienced before, guilt, Shame, remorse, the kind of stuff that you and I deal with all the time because we struggle with sin all the time. But Jesus doesn't. He has lived a perfect life. He has never experienced thinking the Father is disappointed with him. He's never woken up in the morning and regretted what he did the night before. He has never disobeyed the Father. He has never done what he shouldn't have done or left undone what he should have done. He's never felt guilt. 
He's never felt shame. But as he hangs on the cross, all of that is going to envelop him. And we know how it feels to experience that. And Jesus is is going to experience it in a way that you and I have never experienced it before. I think that's why on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not because the Father has actually forsaken him, that the Father has turned his back on him. But it's the same thing you and I experience, only more so, that when we sin, there is something in us that feels as though we are separated from God, because we are. Sin does that. We feel that God is, has, has turned away from us. We, under, we sense our relationship with him is not what it was. And Jesus is going to go through that. And he's saying, Father, isn't there another way? It's not that Jesus doesn't want to be the means of, of redeeming the world. That's why he came. He loves the world. With every part of his being, every fiber of his being, he loves the world. He has come to redeem the world. But in this prayer, recognizing all that that's going to mean and the agony of that, he's saying, Father, isn't there another way we could accomplish this? It's the kind of prayer you and I would pray. It's the kind of prayer you and I do pray. I think there is something of that going on in the temptation Jesus faces at the beginning of his ministry. He's in the wilderness 40 days. And it tells us that Satan comes and he tempts him. And the temptations are are, are, are grounded in, in three things that Satan wants him to do. He says, you know, you're hungry, 40 days, turn this stone into bread. He said, go up on the top of the temple, jump off and... And you know God's angels are going to rescue you. Try it. And he says, if you bow down and worship me, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. The thing is, Jesus has the ability to turn stones into bread. He can jump off the temple mount and not be injured. All the kingdoms of the world will definitely be his. The real temptation is to shortcut God's process. Instead of, instead of making bread out of, of, of getting, harvesting the wheat and putting it through the process of baking it and getting it ready, let's just shortcut that. Instead of living his life in a way that is appropriate to the father's care for him, he says, let's test the father and see if he'll do what he says he will do. Instead of of receiving and, and ruling over the kingdoms of the world through his suffering, let's shortcut that process. And you and I are tempted continually to shortcut the process. Because what we're trying to do is to avoid the pain. We're trying to avoid the difficulties. We're trying to make it as easy as possible to get to the end that we want. And this is the prayer of Jesus. He's saying, Father, isn't there an easier way to get to what we both want? And that is the redemption and the salvation of the world. Setting people free. That is, there's no doubt that that's what Jesus wants. He's not saying, I don't want to be the savior of the world. He's saying, isn't there an easier, less painful way to do that? All things are possible with you, Father. Let's do it. I don't really want to go through this. It is a brutally honest prayer. And I'm convinced that this is the kind of praying that God wants from us. Why is it that we are hesitant to pray honest prayers? Probably a number of reasons. I think one is that it, it, 
this doesn't feel very spiritual to tell God, I'd rather not do this. And the spiritual thing seems to be, God, I'll just do whatever you want. But here's the truth. We can say that, but in our minds, we're wrestling because that's what we do as human beings. We wrestle with stuff. We struggle with stuff. We don't want to go through painful experiences. We don't want to take the long, hard road. We want to take the easy, short road. But something in us feels like if I tell God what I honestly think, then I'm going to look bad. And of course, underlying that is God doesn't know what we're thinking. It isn't real until we actually say the words. But the reality is God knows what we're thinking. I still remember the day that dawned on me. You know, I've been living a long time thinking if I don't speak the words, then they're not real. And all of a sudden I went, oh wait, God already knows that anyway, right? So I might as well say them. But there is something about speaking words that bring them to life. And they're real and they're honest. And we struggle with that because it doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do. And yet here is Jesus being honest in his prayer. It's not a sin to be honest with God. It's not a sin to say, God, I don't know why you're doing this. It's not a sin to be angry with God, to be frustrated with God, to be upset with God. And it's not a sin to tell him that. Look at the, through the scriptures over and over again. People challenge God. Lord, why are you doing this? How long, oh Lord? What's going on? How could you possibly make this decision? What are you thinking? In fact, some of those spiritual people that scripture presents to us are some of the most honest people with God. And we have a tendency to equate spirituality with, with not being honest with God. But the scriptures seem to turn that around. Just like Jesus. And sometimes we need to say to God, I'm, I'm, I'm angry, I'm frustrated with you. And you need to know that because that's how we feel. And we're not gaining anything by ignoring our feelings. I think God would far rather have us be passionate either for him or against him than be dispassionate about him. I mean, isn't that what he's saying to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3? The problem is you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm. In other words, you're apathetic. You don't really care enough to be honest with me. I think God can work with people who are antagonistic toward him far more than you can work with people who are just neutral and apathetic about him. He'd much rather have us be honest about how we feel than pretend that we don't feel that way when we really do. Someone was saying to me recently, sometimes I, I feel like I have to I have to forgive God. Not ask God to forgive me, but tell God I forgive him. And he said, is that okay? Because it doesn't sound very spiritual. And I said, yes, that's okay. Not because God has done something that he needs to be forgiven of, because God always acts perfectly. But a part of our process is acknowledging our anger, our frustration, our disappointment with God and telling him that and saying, God, I'm going to forgive you for not doing what I want you to do. Not because he needs to hear it, but because we need to say it. It's part of our process of working through it. Honesty is a, spirit, it's a part of our spiritual process. Secrecy holds us in bondage. Being afraid to say what we're really thinking doesn't help us spiritually. It holds us back spiritually. It's one of the tools of the evil one. He continually tells us, don't be honest. Don't tell anybody. Hold on to that. Keep it a secret. It's one of the ways he keeps us enslaved. It's in honesty that the chains begin to get broken. That's why it's the first step of every 12-step program. I'm Wes. I'm a sinner. 
It's how people start. And until people can acknowledge the truth of their problem, you can't go anywhere. It's an acknowledging and being honest that then the process begins to move forward. You know, I was in seminary and I was speaking at the church there where I attended and was talking about, uh, it, was a, it was a holiness emphasis uh, event and it was talking about what it means to be holy and, and what it means to, you know, to, to be uh, people of God and how, you know, talking about that whole dynamic of, of deep spirituality. And somehow he, I think, I know what happened. That morning we had sung before he spoke the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing God's praise. It's an old hymn of the church. And there's a phrase in that in the last verse that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And the guy spent about five minutes just railing on those words. Saying, what kind of, what are we saying? That prone to wander, we're telling God, hey, you know, I, I'm always wanting to run away from you. I'm always wanting to, to love other things than you. What kind of a Christian faith is that? That's horrible. We shouldn't be doing that. And my first thought was, my initial thought was, yeah, he's right. That's terrible. But the more I've processed it through the years, I realized, no, he's wrong. It's being honest. And yes, we want to get past, we want to move past that. We want to continue to, to be less prone to wonder and less apt to, to leave the God we love. But we don't do that by denying the truth. We do that by being honest. I'm wrestling, Lord. I'm struggling. I'm really having a hard time doing what you want me to do. It's that honesty with God that sets us free. To let him work in us. To change us. That's going to mean that as the church, we have to give each other freedom to be honest. And quite frankly, sometimes we're not very good at that. If we're in a prayer meeting and somebody stands up and begins to pray a brutally honest prayer... We all start getting real uncomfortable. And we're thinking to ourselves, boy, I thought they were more spiritual than that. The problem isn't with them, the problem's with us. The church ought to be the one place where we can be brutally honest because that's what God is calling us to be. Those are the kinds of prayers that make a difference in our lives when we're honest with God. And the church needs to develop an atmosphere in which we are honest with each other. We can pray honest prayers. And we need to do so much better at that. Now, I think we need to be wise about it. You know, there are some settings where being brutally honest isn't right. But that's why we have small groups. That's why we have prayer groups that get together and and small Bible studies. Those are places where we can be honest with each other. We develop relationships with each other. and, and, And we can be honest in those settings. Historians tell us that that really was the genius of the Methodist movement that John and Charles Wesley started. There were lots of things that were going on in that 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 made it uh the movement that it was that affected England and the world. But one of the key elements of it was the class meetings and the bands, these small groups that got together and were honest with each other. And the most intimate of groups, the people who really committed to the movement and to God would get together every week in their small groups and they would go around the room and say, what victories have you had this week that we can celebrate together? And after everyone shared all the successes, then they said, okay, what sins have we all committed this week that we need to confess? And I suspect if we did that, that would clear the room pretty quickly. Because we're not used to that. We think that's, that's spiritual weakness. But Wesley understood what scripture teaches, what we see modeled in Jesus and the great people of faith. That's spiritual strength.
That's how spiritual growth takes place. By having a safe place to be honest with each other. And again, it's not everybody. You notice Jesus, Jesus only, only prays this honest prayer in the audience of Peter, James, and John, these closest of friends. He's careful about to whom he reveals himself. In John's gospel, it says that he didn't tell everyone around him everything he was thinking because he said he knew the heart of human beings and you need to be wise about it. But there ought to be some people with which we can be honest. Because if we're not, we're going to be held in spiritual bondage, not freedom. I think one of the things that messes us up, confuses us, gets us on the wrong track, is that we, we've become convinced that the purpose and the goal of our walk with Christ is the destination. It's the end. But when you read the scriptures, when you, when you study the lives of God's great people through the centuries... Their focus is not on the end, it's on the day-to-day journey. When our focus gets on the end, that's when we start becoming Christians who are just thinking about checking the list. We become very legalistic. And we don't see anything wrong with the mindset that the end justifies the means. And we use people and we walk over people, and we ignore relationships, and we certainly aren't thinking about being honest, because all we're thinking about is, I just gotta get to that goal as fast as I can and in as easy a way as possible. But when you look at the scriptures, what God is saying, it's about the day-to-day journey. The journey is The goal. And if you pay attention to the journey, if you're paying attention to the relationship with God, the the destination takes care of itself. Because our, our walk with Christ is about relationship. It's about the day to day living with Jesus. Just as our relationships with each other are about the day-to-day living. You know, if you're in a relationship and, and your goal is to have a perfect relationship, your goal is to say, well, one day we'll get to this point, then you're ignoring living your life day-to-day with that person. But the reality is you get to the kind of relationship you want by living in the day-to-day relationship with that person. And that means you're going to live with the ups and the downs and the joys and the sorrows and the frustrations and the agonies and and all the things that are involved in relationship. And it, it means it's going to involve risk and it's going to involve sacrifice. But that's what love is. You can't have love without risk and sacrifice. That's relationship. And those kinds of things are understood and and they are fleshed out in the day-to-day life of honesty with each other. If you want to have the kind of relationship with another person that deep inside you desire, it's got to be honesty. But we will only be honest with people that we believe are going to love us. Even when we're honest. And at the heart of this prayer of Jesus, at the heart of, our, of the call to pray honest prayers, is, a, is an understanding, a belief rooted deep within us that God will always love us. And that nothing will change that. You notice, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, this idea that he's praying to this loving, heavenly Father. 
that all of this prayer is rooted in his relationship with the Father, whose love for him is eternal. And he knows that. And it's at the heart of his being. And when you know that, you can be honest. Because you know you're not going to be rejected. You know that God isn't going to say, I can't believe they're thinking that. I'm done with them. I can't believe they just said that. I'm done with them. I can't believe they just did that. I'm done with them. Remember, Jesus says to his disciples, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children who are imperfect and frustrate you and disappoint you and you, want, and you love them anyway, how much more your Father in heaven? How much more? How much more? The call to honest prayer comes from the heart of our loving Heavenly Father who will never reject us. Who will never turn his back on us. Who calls us to be honest so that he can do his work in us and set us free. Obviously, I have no idea if you were to pray an honest prayer this morning, what that prayer might be. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that if we were to be brutally honest with God, our prayer life might look different than it has. And that's exactly what God wants. So that he can set us free and make us the people he created us to be through his grace. Holy Father, thank you for your love for us that calls us not to hide, not to pretend, not to lie, but to be brutally honest with you. And to know that you will never reject us or turn from us. You'll just love us. Father, in this moment of silence, hear our honest prayers. And let us hear your response of grace. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.